0: Gather around the campfire, Peritopians. We've got a real horror story to share with you. What if aliens were here from another planet? Reptiles and little gray buggy-eyed guys who were creating hybrids and human clone bodies to inject their souls into so they can take over the Earth by repopulating it as they watch us die out. And that's not even the horror story. The horror story is, imagine if you will... Thousands of people believe that this is true, believe that they're involved in this, all because they were hypnotized and led to believe that it was true. Can you imagine a world where that happens? <sighs> Sadly, I can. you know who else can? Our guest today, Dr. Scott Lillianfeld. He is a professor of psychology at Emory University. He is the editor of the Scientific Review of Mental Health Practice... And he's co-author of 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology, Shattering Widespread Misconceptions About Human Behavior. Now available in paperback. He's here to shed a little light on the, the what's and whatnots of hypnotherapy. Imagine a world where a paranormal show is willing to tackle this topic. Well, you can stop imagining. Without further ado, here is Dr. Scott
1: Lillianfeld. Hey, Paratopians, Jeff and Jeremy here again with you. On the show for the week and our guest this week is dr scott Williamfeld, who is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at emory university in atlanta and dr scott we're gonna we're gonna call you dr scott for this episode (laughs) thanks for coming on thanks for coming on the show it's my pleasure Uh, i guess uh i guess where we wanted to start this all off was to kind of get a groundwork laid and i was wondering if if you could answer for me the most basic question what is hypnosis
2: oh that's the hardest question of all i think oh great uh, <laughs> <that's> the, <hardest. laughs> the basic ones are sometimes the hardest ones uh it depends who you ask but um i would argue and i think uh many i wouldn't say all but i think many uh psychologists would say that hypnosis is not uh, not really a state uh it's not really a trance even though it's often trade that way for me hypnosis is is really more a set of procedures for inducing certain expectancies in consciousness um, and, uh, expect- and and uh, expectancies for changes in consciousness uh, changes in one's mental state and so on so for me, uh, and I think most people who study hypnosis we're really looking more at not so much a distinct state but more a set of procedures that uh, often will arouse people's expectations of what's going to happen to them mentally. Okay.
1: Would you say, I mean, in your opinion, would you say that hypnosis is primarily used as a behavior modification tool? Uh,
2: Probably not. Uh, It's a good question. I don't know what the survey data show. Um, I think um, it should be, when it is used, I think it probably should be used more often as a behavior modification tool. I think it it really varies. I think some therapists use it for that purpose. Uh, Others may use it to induce relaxation. Others, uh, in my view, uh, generally unfortunately, will use it uh, for things like uh, memory recovery, memory refreshment, trying to refresh old memories. Uh, it's, it's those uses, I think, where I, I have a lot more problems with it. Well that's, that's primarily where we have a problem
1: too. Um, what would you say would be some of hypnosis or in, in particular, I guess we should say regression hypnotherapy? Uh, what would you say are its limits or its pitfalls?
2: Uh, Right, so where where is it problematic? Um, And I I should be clear to your listeners that um, I think hypnosis probably does have some good clinical uses. There's some good evidence from reviews of the literature that it may be helpful as an adjunct, probably not a standalone treatment, but as an adjunct to existing therapy, maybe for helping people to stop smoking and stop bad habits. Uh, Again, probably not by itself, but maybe as a as a way of kind of jacking up people's uh, motivation to change, it may be helpful. So where is it not so helpful, where is it dangerous? Um, I think there's pretty good evidence that uh, hypnosis, along with other suggestive procedures, can uh, wreak all kinds of uh, trouble when it comes to people's memories, that it can lead to a heightened risk of false memories, memories that are held with uh, conviction but are not uh, accurate, and it can often result or at least sometimes result in what's called memory hardening, uh, hardening of memories, meaning that people are often more confident of memories even when they did not happen. Uh, from what we can tell, most of the research shows that hypnosis and hypnosis is not unique in this way, um, but it, it probably results in a lowered threshold for reporting just about anything. Uh, I mean, I think the way I was i often tell my students is that the effect of hypnosis is probably not all that different from from getting rip-roaring drunk. I mean, if you're really drunk, <laughs> you're, you're going to be more likely to say lots of things. Uh, some of them may be accurate, and occasionally there are reports of uh, accurate information coming out under hypnosis, and those have been used by hypnosis proponents or proponents of, of using hypnosis for memory recovery uh, as evidence that hypnosis uh, improves memory. That's not necessarily the case, because Hypnosis is just probably making people more likely to report everything or many things. Some of that stuff is going to be accurate. Uh, Much of it's going to be inaccurate. And most research shows that, in fact, hypnosis probably, on average, uh, produces a heightened proportion of inaccurate relative to accurate memory. So it probably ends up doing more harm than good when it's used for memory recovery.
1: And you say that, essentially, when someone, just say... uh has a false memory come up in in hypnosis and it solidifies that. Does that memory for them then become part of their real memory? I mean, is it every bit as real as a real memory
2: to them? That's a great great question. Um, I think it depends, but I think sometimes it it probably can. Um, I don't know if it always does, but I do think that can sometimes happen because, and I use the term false memories uh, myself, although I have to say I think to some extent, and this is I think an important point i'll try to get across to some extent it may be a a misnomer um again i've used it in my own writing but i I have some misgivings about it in some ways uh, i think it's important to remember that when people have what's called a false memory they actually are remembering something um and they're remembering something accurately the problem is they are confusing their memory with their imagination so it, in a sense, it's a false memory, I guess. But in, in reality, I think it's a little more complex than that because what's happening is they're really experiencing what's often called a source memory problem. Not to get too technical, but we've all had source memory problems. When, for example, we've woken up uh, uh, after a dream uh, and we uh, and maybe later in the day we said, did this happen or did I dream that? Many people, if not most people, have had that experience. Um, we're not sure whether or not something really happened, whether we dreamt it. Uh, or we misremember something that we really imagined as actually having happened, I think what often ends up happening is it does become incorporated in one's memory, sometimes perhaps permanently, because one does remember it and remembers it pretty vividly. The problem is one is confusing what one imagined, what what one fantasized, what one thought about with what actually happened in the real world, and that could be dangerous.
3: Right.
1: Do you know exactly the point in time in... in I guess the history of, of hypnosis or psychology—that when did it become less of a behavior modification tool and more, you know, when we got into all of that past life stuff and the alien abduction retrieval memory and the, and the satanic
2: ritual abuse yeah, stuff? Right. Well, when, when did, when amazing, did all right.
1: that come up? I mean, how did that? How did it mutate into that?
2: Right. Uh, yeah. I, I, would say I'm a, I wouldn't say I would an expert in the history uh, of that, but. Certainly the idea of using uh, hypnosis for memory recovery is not new. The specific incarnation of it with satanic ritual abuse and alien abductions and all kind of stuff is is new, and of course that that became a big craze in the 80s and and 90s, but Sigmund Freud uh, back in the 1890s, uh, around the turn of the 20th century, was was using hypnosis, um, and others were, too, along with him, Joseph Breuer, one of his... Then collaborators were using hypnosis to try to bring back early uh, memories. And um, I mean, I've been critical of Freud for uh, about many things, uh, and I think Freud sometimes comes up for for opprobrium for good reason. But he was uh, a very um, uh, perceptive observer, and actually, he gave up using hypnosis largely for the reason we're talking about. He actually became convinced. That hypnosis was producing false memories, huh. and uh, he started uh, doubting uh, whether or not it was really a reliable uh, technique, and started uh, be, to become pretty convinced that what he was actually recovering, for example, were not tr- memories of actual abuse, but memories of, of imagined abuse. Um, so it's it's really not a an, uh, either a new technique for that purpose, and in fact, it's a shame that many of Freud's followers did not learn from his his hard lessons, um,
3: right.
2: and uh, it was used certainly during uh, both world wars by people along with things like truth serum, which is another suggestive technique to try to uh, bring back memories, for example, of wartime combat. People experienced horrible wartime traumas and had some symptoms, and some psychiatrists in particular thought maybe if people could remember what happen to them uh, better. They would uh, get better, even though there's not much evidence that's true, but well-intentioned people were doing that. And um, uh, so, again, some of the more recent uh, uses of it, uh, I don't. it's a good question. I don't know when past-life regression uh, therapy was first used, but, it, again, it certainly became very popular 70s, 80s, and 90s. But it's, yeah. uh, the general use of it is, is not that new.
1: Well, I know back in the, like you said, the mid 80s, early 90s is when people started having these alien abduction, regression, hypnotherapy sessions. And I guess, well, the two biggest names in the field, uh, Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs, were kind of the main proponents that you always heard talking about.
2: Yeah, and I'm, I'm a bit Richard, familiar with their with their work, yeah. Right,
1: right. Uh, but they were the two main guys who who were employing the use of this to recover memories. And and. Continuously, I know, um, in watching programs on television and documentaries and even seeing them speak at a couple of places, that uh, that they felt very sure that these were real memories, that these were not imagined, that uh, the emotions shown by a patient or a subject during the procedure couldn't be faked. Uh, these were real tears. This was real trauma, these people's experience. This is all the kinds of things they used to say. And so when I started looking at just for my dislike of some of the things that were coming out of it, I thought, I don't know that this hypnosis thing is really all that reliable for getting there uh, and getting what they call missing time, where someone remembers absolutely nothing uh, about a, a course of what could be a several hours. Right. Um, and I, what I found when I talked to other therapists and doctors, that, that the main issues or the severe issues, which we spoke about on the phone in our first conversation some months ago, I said, you know, there was the the issue of leading questions by the the facilitator of of the hypnosis and also uh, cultural contamination. Someone goes to see someone like Hopkins or Jacobs because they think they've been abducted by aliens. The notion of an alien abduction scenario is well engrossed in the media and therefore they already know what they're going to get when they go
2: in. Sure, it's out, it's out there. It's, just, it's everywhere. Sure,
1: sure. And, but but when I mentioned those things to you, you said, well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so, so what would be some of the more, I guess, damning uh, against marks uh, f- for this procedure as a whole?
2: Well, a couple things. Um, the claim that because people experience powerful emotions during hypnosis, which is interesting, and it's an important observation, and I don't have any reason to doubt what they're saying about that. I suspect it's probably largely or entirely true, Um, but the claim that that somehow validates or vindicates the reality of the experiences is, is, I have to say, exceptionally naive from a psychological standpoint. Uh, Again, it's really hard to prove a negative in science, and is it possible that some of these things are real. I, I I doubt it, but, again, one would have to investigate these things scientifically. I'd, I'd have to have pretty extraordinary evidence to, to persuade me. Sure. Uh, but that, that's certainly not extraordinary evidence, the fact that someone has powerful emotional experiences, cries, screams during these things. That, that's, I'm sure, very subjectively powerful to watch, and I'm sure I'd be very moved by it if I saw it. But the fact of the matter is what the reason it's naive is that the subjective experience of these memories is... is in many cases, just as real as a subjective experience of, of actual events. And I have little or no doubt that most, if, if not all, of the people they studied really believe this happened to them. Sure. And um, and therefore, it's not at all surprising that uh, they would show these emotions. The other thing I used to hear, certainly John Mack, the late John Mack would make this, this argument, uh, is that uh, the similarity comparable of of reports across people who have been abducted lends support to their verticality. And that's one hypothesis for sure. And that of course if it's sort of asymmetrical, right? If um, if if it were happening, uh you would expect uh people's reports to be similar, but that's a logical error. Um just because A implies B doesn't mean B implies A, right. And uh, another interpretation is that uh, the as you say, the commonality in these reports has nothing to do with the actual events, but simply has to do with the kind of cultural contamination uh, with watching television shows, cable TV shows, and now, of course, the Internet. Right. The idea of alien abductions is out there in the ethos, and, and almost any educated person uh, will, will have it. In terms of the tip of the iceberg, I think a lot of it relates back to what I was saying before, which is that hyp- hypnosis is a... One of many suggestive procedures, so again, I don't want to blame hypnosis for everything. You mentioned um, suggestive questioning, cueing, leading questions. Uh, These are all, uh, using truth serum, these are all leading uh, questions and and leading techniques that can uh, suggest to people, hence the term suggestive techniques, suggest to people that certain events happen when they did not, and they can lead to very powerfully held false memories of things that did not happen. And I cannot emphasize enough that these techniques are not innocuous by any means. Um, I have dealt with people who have been persuaded that they had multiple personalities, um, uh, that they were abused as children, that I've I've dealt with people who have cut off contact with parents, loved ones because of this. And, um, uh, the fact of the matter is, in many of these cases, the abuse was, was never corroborated. Probably in me- many of these cases, the abuse never even happened. Um, and um, th- this is really serious stuff. And I think one criticism I have of some of these folks is that they do not understand the basic science of memory. Uh, memory is um, does not work like a, uh, a video camera, or DVD, or tape recorder. It is it's a it's a pretty amazing uh, system it works pretty darn well most of the time um and it's uh, it's really remarkable in terms of what it can do but it is also very fallible and uh it can be misled if we're not careful
1: well we have to I, I do have to tell you that Hopkins and Jacobs uh Bud Hopkins is an artist he is not a doctor of any sort yes i do know that um Dr Jacobs is a professor of history i know that so, too, yes. so neither one of them you know, to my mind, should be fooling with this stuff.
2: Well, you got to uh, be careful with it. I mean, and, uh, you know, again, I don't want to imply that, um, I'm sure they're both very smart, uh, very creative people. Uh, sure. I don't want to imply that people without PhDs in psychology can't bone up and learn a lot about the psychology of memory. But uh, you have to do your homework.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, don't you feel that uh, seeing as hypnotherapy can be a relatively dangerous tool by by what you've told us tonight that, Really, it should be. I don't know. It's not like you can regulate this procedure in any real way. But don't you think that it would be? I don't know. Somehow to hold people to account for for effectively, from what it sounds like, changing people's memories or actually creating well, that's uh, the case of changing you know, their
2: identities actually, it's, yeah, it's, it's
1: mean, changing who that person is. I mean, that's a that's a pretty drastic uh, well, thing. Right, so, to to fooling right you now.
2: Well, to a large extent, our memories are who we are, right? right. I mean, a, I mean let's, let's think about each of us. I right? think we're going to each reflect for a moment, just to take a moment to think back on our life experiences. Every one of us, every one of our listeners has had an uh, amazing life story. When you, that's one thing I love about psychology. Everyone's story is unique. Everyone's story is mind-boggling, right? Just sit down with someone and talk about their life histories, and uh, everyone has amazing things to say. Everyone's life history is distinctive, and, and a lot of what makes us – is what has happened to us. I think of myself and the people I've met, the people I love, the people I didn't like, <laughs> the right. uh, uh, jobs I've had, uh, the things I've accomplished, the failures I've had, the things I've succeeded. Those, a lot of those memories are who I am. And when you start changing people's identity, as, for example, you do with multiple personality disorders, what's often called associative identity disorder, you really are changing people's uh, sense in in a very deep way of who they are because they're changing their life history. So in terms of regulating it, my own advice is just don't do it. I just don't think we should. I don't think there's any any ever reason for using hypnosis for the purpose of memory recovery or memory refreshment. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, With with those folks, uh, again, I'm not not a lawyer, but... um, Uh, probably not much one could do in terms of the ethics of the profession because they're not members of the American Psychological Association. Right. Uh, There are ethical standards that the American Psychological Association has of its members, uh, of therapists. But I have to say that, um, in general, the American Psychological Association, I think, has been very reluctant to sanction its practitioners for ethically, in my view, ethically and scientifically questionable treatments. They do sanction them for doing un- other unethical things, which they certainly should do, like sleeping with current clients and, and drinking in and, and therapy sessions. and All wow. those things are also terrible, and those things should also be uh, dealt with. But I also think that practice that is blatantly unscientific or pseudoscientific should also not be tolerated by the profession. And I'm afraid in too many cases it has been.
1: Well, that was my, kind of my last question to you. It, it seems like the psychiatric community is kind of split on the whole issue. I mean, is that, am I right or wrong in that assumption? Um,
2: I don't think so. I, I don't know in terms of what the latest surveys have shown in terms of views of psychologists and psychiatrists. I think what you, you're probably likely to get is what's sometimes termed a science practitioner split, which is um, a big problem for our profession, especially in, in psychology. Uh, I I suspect if you were to go into academic settings and ask them this question, I think you'd get pretty good consensus. Most would say that hypnosis is a suggestive technique, that hypnosis can often produce uh, false memories. Uh, Don't do it. Um, uh, A lot of false memories maybe, or or a lot of uh, memories uh, that have been recovered using hypnosis are probably false. Maybe not all. It's still a contentious issue that we haven't talked about yet um if you went into uh practitioner communities you might get more of a of a divide though you, you probably would get some practitioners uh, particularly those in my view who read the memory literature who are well versed in that who would agree but you get other practitioners who would say they don't see a problem with it
1: well i, I know that uh, one of the things i heard back in the day about regression hypnotherapy is that uh, and this was put out by a skeptic organization that the part of the brain that you're dealing with in, in that kind of a state is the kind of or part of the brain rather that deals
2: with uh, fantasy. Is that true or or not true? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's no there's no one part of the brain that deals with with fantasy. Um, there there are multiple parts. Huh. Um, uh, I mean, there's certainly both uh, more cognitive or thinking areas as well as emotional areas that become activated when we think of a fantasy, but I think the more important point here is that um, there is research showing that, in many cases, the brain areas that become activated when we experience an event or see an event uh, are often very similar to, if not identical, to those that happen when we imagine an event vividly, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 therefore it may be very hard to distinguish those two. Now. There are, I should point out, individual differences, differences among people in that not everyone seems to be equally prone to false memories. Um, And um, based on what we're talking about, it sort of makes sense that people with particularly vivid imaginations uh, may be particularly prone to false memories because those are the very folks that may have very intense false memories. They may confuse their imaginations because they are so intense with what really happened. Huh. Uh, in everyday life, when we are trying to figure out did this really happen, or did I just think this, and that happens to all of us did i did I say that to my boss or did, did I, right. I anything that to my boss right um, What do we usually do? We usually usually use as a a cue how vivid it is um, if it 's sort of very faint, very vague, we say, no, I, I think I was just imagining that, but if it 's something very vivid, if we have a very distinct recollection of it, then we say no i 'm pretty sure it happened." think about this, if you're a person with a very, very vivid imagination, then uh, it's going to be very hard to tell the difference between those two, because things you merely thought about, imagined, fantasized, are going to be uh, very uh, vivid in your mind. Right. Um, It's interesting you mentioned Hopkins as an artist. Uh, My own admittedly anecdotal impression uh, of this is that, uh, and this is just anecdote. I want us to be careful about that, but I think some of the folks that are particularly prone to these kinds of experiences are people who are especially artistic. Um, I think people who are artistic, who are very high in in the psychological dimension of what's called openness to experience, Uh people who are very intellectually curious, creative, artistic people. Those are often the very people who have very rich fantasy lives, they're often really interesting, intense. People, they have a very rich sense of imagination, they're often very cultured, and um, based on what the research literature shows, some of those folks are often the, the most prone to false memories.
1: Wow. Well, you, you pretty much just described me, too, because I'm an artist, too. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: Jeremy. Uh,
0: yeah, you know, it's interesting. I spoke to Bill Burns last night, who is probably best known for UFO Hunters and UFO Magazine, um, being mm-hmm. a publisher. But he's also got a deep background in psychology, and he is very much anti-hypnotherapy, and uh, which I found interesting since he wrote a terrific. magazine. Um, he says that he believes it's predatory because what you need to learn as a psychologist or psychiatrist, as, as any sort of therapist, is how the patient perceives you, the therapist. And if you don't have that sort of background in how you're being perceived, he said that it goes through stages that the patient can see you as sort of a father figure or mother figure as sort of a lover figure uh so on and so forth and that some of these hypnotherapists just sort of kind of use this to um foster sexual fantasies uh with female clients is that something that you can speak to does that make sense yeah
2: i don't know uh yeah it's I think he, I think he's right uh, in part, um, I think he's got a good point. I think what I would say where I'd certainly agree with him is that it is really crucial for therapists to understand how they are perceived. I think it is easy to forget that it's a really hierarchical relationship intrinsically. It's easy to forget that many, if not most clients who are coming to therapy, especially for the first time, are often scared, they're desperate. They often look up to the therapist. They're investing a lot of hope and trust in the therapist. They assume, justifiably, the therapist knows what they're doing. And uh, they're often in a very powerful one-down position, and it's easy to forget how potent the therapist's influence can can be. And Freud certainly knew that. Uh, Others um, since him have known that, too. But it's it's easy to forget uh, that uh, one has a very, uh, a lot of, influence over one's clients, and one is a often in a very strong power relationship with one's clients. That's easy to forget. Mm-hmm. How much of it is, is consciously predatory? I don't know. I suspect that many or most of these people are well-intentioned, doing what they think is the right thing, uh, but poorly trained. Right. And, uh, that's where is getting at. Yeah, and um, you yeah, know, I'm sure there's always going to be a small number of bad apples in any profession who are deliberately, consciously trying to manipulate people and and boost their sexual fantasies. That's, that, unfortunately, is probably going to happen in, in any profession. I, I suspect at a conscious level, that's probably a very small number. I suspect most of these uh, people who use hypnosis are genuinely trying to help, and they become convinced that it's easy to become convinced because they're dealing with sincere people who... Are expressing very powerful emotions. It's probably very easy to become convinced that these things are real.
0: So then, that brings me to another question, and and I don't even know if you'll know the answer to this, but um, for people who do get certificates, you know, they they say they're they're licensed hypnotherapists, but they're otherwise not therapists. Um, do they have that type of background training to in order to get a certificate in hypnotherapy?
2: No, yeah, I'm not an expert here. My impression is, and I have to be careful because I, I'm not. That's familiar with it, but my, my impression is no. Um, I think most of them, from what I've seen, um, they get trained in the in the art of hypnosis, how to do it. Uh, I don't believe that in most cases, and in all fairness, this may vary on a state-by-state basis. Some of your listeners may, may know more than I do on this one, but I don't believe that in most states there's any formal requirement for exposure to the basic science of memory, which is really what you need. Mm-hmm. So you can learn how to do the techniques and learn how to do the inductions and, and suggestions and that kind of stuff, but um, uh, I don't believe that in most cases, these individuals are in any way, shape, or form required to learn about the basic science of memory, the basic science of memory reconstruction, memory fallibility, uh, what we know about the research of regarding hypnosis and other suggestive techniques. So that's that's a dangerous combination because you have some people who are trained in the techniques themselves, but may may not always be aware of their dangers.
0: Well, um, I won't ask you to pick on David Jacobs, but but I'll pick on him if you'll
2: just <laughs> indulge sure. me.
0: I'm looking at his um, bio information on the International Center for Abduction Research website, and it says at the end of his bio, it says. Dr. Jacobs is a strong advocate of strict scientific and ethical research methodology. With colleagues Bud Hopkins and John Carpenter, he's given a series of workshops for members of the mental health community in the methods of abduction hypnosis, research, and therapy. Um, does that sound right to you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that sounds a little fishy to me. Um, I'm glad to hear he he, he uh, feels strongly about uh, adhering to scientific principles, um, but it's important to remember that the essence of science is safeguarding oneself against being fooled. And uh, that's what good, not all scientists do that, but good scientists do that. Good scientists always subject their claims, especially their most cherished claims, to very close scrutiny. Uh, One way of doing that, by the way, it's not a perfect way, but one way of doing that is to put your work out there, not merely among people who agree with you, but also to subject it to the crucible of what's called peer review, having peers rip your papers apart, and I can tell you having been a, <laughs> on the other end, I've been on both sides of that. I, I I review many articles for journals, and I've been on the receiving end of that process as well. It's a very ego-bruising process. It's not for the thin skin, but it's, it's a, a good safeguard, and not, not a perfect one, um, but it's a good safeguard against making sure you don't get fooled, making sure that you don't uh, make claims that go way beyond the evidence, because... If you uh, submit a, an article to a peer-reviewed journal, uh, you're going to get people who are trying to rip it apart. And uh, some of them can be mean, but by the same token, uh, they also will subject your claims to pretty close scrutiny. To my knowledge, Jacobs says I could be wrong, correct me if I am, but he has not tried to submit his work to peer-reviewed psychological journals. I think he, it would be a good idea if he did, because that might expose some, some weaknesses in his methodology.
0: Well, let me ask you. Geez, I didn't think I'd be on the defending end of Jacobs, but if you were to do that, um, what what peer reviewed journal in their right mind is going to not try to turn alien abductions into a laughing stock
2: yeah. issue? Well, yeah, uh, some of them probably would, um, but there are uh, psychological journals that are sometimes open to new ideas. There's, of course, always a resistance to new ideas, uh, understandably, but. Uh, there are some psychological journals that will say, look, if you, if you can provide us with really strong, really convincing evidence, we will take a look at it. In fact, I even edit a journal called The Scientific Review of Mental Health Practice. Uh, as I've told people, it's a little small journal. If, um, if you can submit something to our journal, even if it may sound bizarre, may sound kind of kooky, we'll send out it out for peer review. If, if we can become convinced it's based on good science, we'll take a look at it. You can also present things at conferences. And uh, which also sometimes also involve a peer review process and, and see whether the scientists in the audience are persuaded or at least even persuaded to take a look at it. That can be a very uh, useful educational process. Uh, peer review also holds, by the way, for some books. So some publishers will use peer review in terms of evaluating books. Um, all of these are ways of at least minimizing the chance that uh, you're. Uh, uh, cherished beliefs are subjected to close scrutiny. Did John uh,
0: Mack uh, submit to peer review? Uh,
2: not to my knowledge. Huh? Uh, not to my knowledge. No.
0: Um, did you get a chance to listen to the recording uh, I sent you from Emma Woods? I did.
2: I did. Yes, I did. I, I wasn't able to hear all of it. The, the audio it was a little muzzled, but um, I muffled. But, but I was able to hear much of it.
0: So, what do you make of that? Uh, l- let, me, let me. I was
2: troubled by it. Let me I give the setup troubled.
0: for this. Um, in case people don't know, there's this woman named Emma Woods. Uh, who was a client of David Jacobs, and her claim is that he (laughs) apparently believes that that he has, what, told her something, um, may have shared too much information? I don't know, that somehow the aliens might be on to him. So he has tried to convince her under hypnosis that she suffers from multiple personality disorder and that he doesn't believe in alien abductions so that when the aliens abduct her next... They will read this from her thoughts and go, "Oh, I guess we don't have to eat David Jacobs or whatever the <laughs> aliens do." Um, now, it's and almost, I listen to almost, that it's tape. It's
2: almost dinner time for me, by the way, so I, I wouldn't push that too much further. But
0: uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I listen to the tape and I'll play it. I'll play it here uh, for our audience as well um, because I got permission from her to do that. Oh my God.
3: and you should take medication for it. I've seen lots of cases of MPD and this absolutely fits the MPD profile. And my professional diagnosis, therefore, is multiple personality disorder. I am studying it. I am writing a book about it. That is my next book. I feel that the whole sort of alien business, is all a matter of muscle personality disorder. It's a much more widespread problem than people think. Lots of people are walking around with it. It's a public health problem. yours is a classic case and that that's the only
0: it's really disconcerting because I, I listen to it and I cannot see how she's taking that out of context. I mean, it really does sound like that. I, what, what do you make of that? Is that, I mean, does he need therapy at that point?
2: <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm not to say that. I think, uh, I think you need some, some uh, basic training in, in um, psychology. Uh, one really doesn't know whether, whether to laugh or cry when you hear this kind of thing. I, I wasn't able to, to, discern as much as you were in terms of what his his rationale or motive was. What I heard was that he was um, basically telling her that his diagnosis of her was multiple personality disorder, now called dissociative identity disorder in the current diagnostic manual, and uh, also telling her that she needed medication and basically telling her that he thought multiple personality disorder was... Very widespread and many people have it but it's gone undetected in the population and he's quite sure that she had it and so on and so forth and uh, Are I gathered this
0: while she's under hypnosis is there
2: uh, is, well I was not able to figure that out but that's what I gathered um, um, I didn't hear her say very much I assume she was sort of quietly listening but I'm, I'm gathering from what from the context that she was uh, either in a relaxed or hypnotic state Right and, and then uh, there's
0: the five, four, three, two, one thing. I think. Okay, okay
2: I did not hear that. Well, yeah, I was probably doing some kind of trance, so-called trance induction. Um, the um, uh, it's troubling on many levels. First, he, he does not seem to to indicate he may be aware of it. I don't know, but he certainly does not seem to indicate that multiple personality disorder or now dissociative identity disorder is also an exceedingly controversial diagnosis. Many people, myself included, believe that it is at least in some cases partly brought on by therapist suggestions that therapists who are uh, digging around for some alter personalities who are trying to explain or explain away patients puzzling or inexplicable behaviors often suggest to clients that they have different personalities that makes that may account for why they are acting in inexplicable or puzzling ways and that many therapists probably inadvertently are implanting those alter personalities or so-called alters in these clients along, in many cases, with specific memories that go along with those alters, perhaps memories of past trauma, uh, other life events, child abuse, and, and so on. I, I cannot judge from uh, the little tape that, that I heard whether or not there is any risk that... Uh, Jacobs has has done that. In this case, I don't know. I would not want to say that. But those techniques in general, I think, come with a high risk of implanting both false memories in clients and also probably implanting alters and alter personalities, which change people's sense of their own identities.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let me read you this uh, and just get your take on this. This is from Emma Woods' website, which is ufoalienabductee.com. She basically says um, she went to Jacobs with a bunch of uh, fragmentary conscious memories. uh, And then under hypnosis, she says this uh, later in mid uh, later in mid late 2009, an analysis of the recordings of all the hypnotic regressions that David Jacobs conducted with me showed that he engaged in extensive leading and suggestion, which I was not fully aware of at the time. It is probable that many of my hypnotically retrieved memories were confabulated as a result of this. And then she goes on to say, At the same time, I was able to confirm that some of the everyday events that I recalled under hypnosis, such as the dates that an event occurred, which I'd forgotten, were in fact accurate. Therefore, I know that hypnosis assisted me in recalling at least some accurate memories. So, uh, what what do you well, make of... It seems of- like a very
2: thoughtful analysis, actually, I think...
0: Yeah, I mean what do you what do you make of that? Well, I mean she does seem to be saying, I mean she goes on to then basically say, so I can't really say that all of this was confabulated. Well, no,
2: you can't. And and we don't know whether it was all confabulated. There's no way to know. So a couple things, first she um what she's saying is actually pretty perceptive and pretty consistent with the hypnosis literature and that hypnosis lowers the threshold for recalling lots of things. Some of them are going to be accurate, some of them are not. Now whether or not As we often say in psychology, correlation isn't causation. Whether or not the hypnosis actually caused her to remember those dates, we don't know. We also know that people will often remember accurate dates just after a bit of prompting and practicing. That's very well documented that you get people to try to remember things. They will sometimes come up with the right dates or details without hypnosis. Could could hypnosis have enhanced that or assisted it? Sure, it's possible. It could have made her more relaxed or... um, made her a bit more likely to report things she wasn't sure of or or so on. Um, But it's also quite possible, if not likely, that, as she says, uh, many of the things she did recall were, in fact, confabulated memories that were sort of attempts to piece together uh, the different conscious fragments she had and try to make sense out of them. So at this point, she's right, um, and you're right, in that there's no way to know what's accurate and what's not. It's probably a jumbled mix.
0: Well, let me ask you for you personally. If you, if someone comes to you and says, "I'm an alien abductee," they lay out their story, and you're, you're predisposed to not believe them. What, what do you say to them?
2: Well, I don't do therapy anymore, but if if I did, um, I would um, just try to be as honest with them as I could. I mean, I, I I'm kind of a straight shooter in that regard, and I would just probably tell them, "Look, I find the story." pretty remarkable i'll be perfectly frank i find it hard to believe but i'm willing to listen i'm willing to be convinced um and um i would never want to dismiss their story i'm willing to hear it but it would take a lot of i would be honest with them and say look it's going to take a lot to persuade me now i would want to find out certainly how did those memories come about were they assisted, facilitated by hypnosis. Were they assisted, facilitated by suggestive memory procedures, leading questions, um, uh, truth theorem, uh, writing these things down in diaries, repeated attempts to remember them, repeated attempts to imagine them, and so on. If that were the case, I would probably gently but firmly say, well, I I think there is an alternative possibility you may want to consider, which is, is it possible that maybe some of these memories were actually brought on by these procedures and get the person to try to consider that, whether I do that all at one time and one session, probably not. But I would probably, as if I were doing therapy, try to raise the possibility uh, with the person uh, that some of these memories might be false and explore some of what actually happened. And, and also, I, I believe good therapists are good educators and, and educate the person a bit in very non-technical terms about what we know about the science of memory, what we, what we know about how memory works and how, how it doesn't work. Uh, a lot of smart people out there, really smart people, a uh, survey show, have all kinds of misconceptions about memory. Mm-hmm. And um, I think good therapists will try to educate people about what memory is, how it works, what it's good for and what it's not good for.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my next question is what sort of therapist were you? Did you give a lot of feedback? Or did you just listen? It sounds like you gave feedback,
3: which is
2: good. Well, the days when I did therapy, uh, again, I'm I, I kind of miss doing it. I'm, I'm now a professor, and I I have to say that's one regret I have is I don't do clinical work uh, anymore in any direct way. But um, sure, I give a lot of feedback. I, I would, uh, and yeah, you have to do a lot of listening, but you also have to do education, and um, uh, I think good therapists do education, and I think. Good therapists may sometimes have to teach clients and, and educate clients about misconceptions about things because, especially in, in this vast world of pop psychology that's out there, there's so much stuff out there in, in the self-help industry and, and on the internet and the media on Oprah and so on. And some of that stuff is, is accurate, but but some of it is widely inaccurate. And uh, the problem is clients come into therapy. And in some ways, it actually worries me, some of the, the smarter, more educated ones who actually read pretty often and, and check the Internet may actually come in with some of the, the biggest misconceptions about memory and, and about hypnosis and, and so on. And, and you almost have to do a, a kind of deprogramming of them in some cases and, and teach them what, what's factual and then what's fictional about these things.
0: Is it possible to give someone um, the suggestion under hypnosis not to remember what they've revealed?
2: Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, and in fact, if you look at the, uh, the so-called phenomenon of post-hypnotic amnesia, that's actually a common misconception about hypnosis as post-hypnotic amnesia, that when people come out of hypnosis, they don't remember what occurred when they're hypnotized. Lots of movies show that. Right? Mm-hmm. In fact, post-hypnotic amnesia, research shows, will not typically happen unless, A, it is directly suggested, That is, the hypnotist directly says, when you come out of this, quote, trance, and again, I would argue hypnosis is not really a distinct trance state, but when you awaken from this, quote, trance, you won't remember what happened, then you will often see post-hypnotic amnesia. Or studies show if people believe that that's what hypnosis is like. If people think post-hypnotic amnesia is an invariable part of the hypnotic process, then they they will often experience it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if it's suggested some people, especially good hypnotics, Subjects, people who are very hypnotically suggestible, some of them will not remember it. Yeah,
0: I'm just, I, the reason I ask is when I was in college, uh, I did hypnosis once with this mm-hmm. woman, uh, Barbara Vicar, who I have don't have any information for, so I can't find her again. And <laughs> I mean, she's moved mm-hmm. since Maybe then. Maybe
2: we'll hear the show and then call you. Uh,
0: yeah, but she, uh, you know, I remember her... I was under hypnosis for a really long time. It only felt like a short amount of time, but it was a really long time. And I, what I remember telling her, I remember at the time while I was under hypnosis feeling like, oh, I'm just conjuring stuff to please her, to answer her questions. These aren't real memories. I'm just imagining things. Um, and that's what I felt at the time. But then when I came out of it, she offered me free therapy. And then I put it together later. Wait a minute. I felt like I was under for a few minutes and I said some some things that weren't real but really I was sort of out for at least an hour. <laughs> mm,
2: yeah. uh,
0: so I'm just wondering if she gave me the suggestion to not remember whatever it was I said and uh, it's to not possible. even ask. I mean, it never it, even occurred to me to ask, you know.
2: Yeah, it's, it's possible. Huh.
0: Um, well, let me ask you, because we do have a, a lot of people who listen to this and, and think about hypnotherapy and even have come to us and said um, – you know, I'm thinking about doing hypnotherapy to uncover memories and all that sort of thing. Um, what would you say to those people who do think for some reason they're abducted by aliens or whatever and are thinking about hypnotherapy? What would you suggest for them as an alternative to that?
2: I'd say don't do it. And then do and it. I, I just, I, I, just don't, I don't think the research supports using hypnosis or other suggestive procedures to recover memories. I just don't. Um, or refresh memories. So I would say just don't do it. Um, I would say if someone uh, really believed they're abducted by Elliot, I would just say, well it's remotely possible you were I would have my doubts, and if the memories come back on their own, which is very unlikely they're going to come back on their own
3: mm-hmm.
2: but, but, but there's not there's not any mean. way you're going to be able to there's not as tempting as it might be there's not any way you're going to be able to extract them using truth theorem or using hypnosis or using suggestive memory procedures. It, it's just probably not going to happen. And the more you do that, as tempting as it might be, the greater the odds that whatever false memories you might have will be solidified. And if you don't have any false memories, there's a very good chance you're going to get them.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So would you tell them then, tough, just live with it? Or would you tell them to go see a, a regular therapist?
2: It depends. I think it would depend on the level of distress they're experiencing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, if if they're not experiencing much distress then therapy ain't for everybody. I don't think everyone needs therapy, but if they believe they're abducted and were experiencing a lot of distress about it, yeah, I would I would encourage them to go see a therapist if it was really interfering with their everyday lives. But if the therapist then started using some of these techniques to extract those memories, I would say politely say thank you and, and um I'll come back to the next session.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you? Well, are you at least fascinated by the fact that these artist therapists, can create art through <laughs> through hypnosis? <laughs> that that you know, That's, through oh, the yeah, years with patients, they can weave this right. Dungeons and Dragons tale of you know aliens <laughs> and, and all oh, that. Oh sure, that to me is. I mean, is I mean what, what is the what is the psychology behind
3: that?
2: I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All, all I know is that hypnosis. Um, uh, can definitely stir people 's imagination it is a uh, uh again it's it 's a set of expectancies for inducing all kinds of changes in behavior and I have no doubt that while hypnotized, some people can produce all kinds of It can often free up people's uh artistic inhibitions other kinds of creative inhibitions and and people can sometimes produce things they wouldn't ordinarily produce mm-hmm. so um and same thing is true for other procedures too like relaxation and And um, um, some people use psychoactive drugs, which I would not advise, but other people do it that way, Uh, not necessarily one I would recommend. Uh, But there are lots of procedures that will will free up people's uh, prefrontal cortex and frontal lobes and make them feel a little bit less inhibited and accomplish things and do creative things they wouldn't ordinarily do.
0: Well, let me ask you one more thing, and then I'll pass it back to Jeff if he has any follow-up. How likely is it... Well, I mean, apparently the answer is very, but it just strikes me as highly unlikely that somebody could weave a logically consistent or at least a tale that has internal logic that's consistent throughout their lifetime of, you know, going to a therapist. Uh, they have these experiences that aren't just a one-off, I saw a UFO, I was abducted, but a lifetime of events. What? Have, it, how is it possible that they could weave a tale that has internal logic and consistency and not, well, be, and not be possible. aware that they're telling a story.
2: Oh, I think that's quite possible. Um, I don't think everyone can do that, but we, um, I think we can't underestimate how creative we are. We are all meaning-seeking organisms. We're looking for patterns and things. We, we tell narratives to ourselves, and we create narratives out of our experiences. And um, when it's something that's very central to your identity, you think about it a lot, What's very central to your self-concept. You think about it a lot. You weave these strands together. You create this meaning, and when, and then when you go to a therapist once a week, twice a week, who asks you to think about these things, go home, write a diary, um, imagine uh, these things. You think about it more. You become more convinced it's true, and um, eventually, in some cases. I suspect your identity and your life narrative can begin to change in very powerful ways mm-hmm. so to me it, it, uh, it, it is fascinating, it is remarkable, do we fully understand how this could happen? No we don't and as scientists we always have to remain open to alternative explanations uh, for things that maybe some of these things really are happening as you can tell I'm very doubtful but i I As a scientist, you have to say, look, I'm willing to be convinced by anything. But I do feel very strongly that the mere evidence that people have these powerful life narratives that are internally consistent should not in any way uh, make us, therefore, assume that a particular person has really been abducted because we are really smart, uh, really creative organisms who will find meaning and and narrative meaning in, in our life experiences.
1: I think the only thing I'd, I'd like to follow up on is when, and Jeremy, you, you said that, you know, a great many people write us asking, you know, what should I do? I'm, I'm considering hypnotherapy and this, set and the other. And usually what Scott said is usually what we do say is that, you know, we don't recommend hypnosis by any stretch. Good. Uh, and I usually run down the list of reasons why, why not to do that. And, and, To kind of give a backstory to me, back in, I would say, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, experience or support groups tended to pop up all over the country where people with like experiences would go and talk about them and seem to make everyone feel better and seem to be some process towards a step towards integrating the weird experience that you can't figure out into your life, which our support group contained a psychologist who said he would do regression hypnotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know he did it with a couple of people. I chose not to after seeing the results, um, which is kind of what prompted me to look further into it. I'm uh, glad you decided that. Yeah. Well, and for the most part, I guess, I don't know how lucky you can call it, but I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I don't really need it to, to remember anything. Uh, I, and one thing that I've always told people, and I, I even said this to Jeremy not more than a couple nights ago, my own thought is, if there's something that traumatic that you can't remember it, you probably aren't supposed to, <laughs> and you'll probably remember it when you're strong enough mentally to handle it. Is that am I right or wrong in, in saying or taking? Well, that
2: yeah, it could it could be. Um, I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, I have to be careful here because I don't want to go beyond the scientific. Data. Um I know this may sound um, radical, but I'm actually not. Convinced that people can forget really traumatic events. Mm. I mean, I, I, we know they can forget them if there's like brain damage or things like that. But right. I think there's, I think there's, and I would not have thought this ten years ago. But I, I'm starting to come around to this because I, I asked me ten years ago it said, sure that can happen. But I have to say, after looking at the research literature and uh, looking at individual cases, I'm I'm not completely convinced that really traumatic events can be uh, fully repressed huh. um, but even if even if they can um, you may be right um, it, what's the the virtue of trying to remember them it, it may not always be necessary I think um there is sort of this sense from pop psychology again going all the way back to Freud and others that um, and there's no doubt there are bad things that have happened to our to us in our lives that we don't think enough about or think a lot about, I should say. Um, bad things that we only remember fragments of, that we've forgotten parts of, and so on. That undoubtedly happens. Um, I think there's often a sense that if there is something bad that's happened to us, whether or not we've repressed it, even putting that aside, we have to remember it. But that's that's the root of the problem. We have to get to this problem or else we can't figure everything else out. And I'm really not sure that's true. I think that... Huh. Uh, I think more and more uh, research on psychotherapy suggests that there may be cases where one wants to do that. I don't want to imply that's always a bad idea, but oftentimes we know from the psychotherapy outcome literature that oftentimes focusing on the present is the best way to go. And if they look, what, this, this bad thing may or may not have happened to you. It could have happened. I'm doubtful, but it's possible it did happen. The question is now, given this... Thing may have happened we'll, we probably will never know for sure uh you believe it happened i'm doubtful that's okay we can we can agree to disagree that's fine i don't want to uh, deny your subjective experience but the question is regardless of what whether it happened do we really need to dig back and find out whether it happened to deal with your current problems and i suspect in most cases the answer is no even though that's very counterintuitive um, huh. I, I that gives me,
1: yeah, that gives me a really uh, interesting insight into the female mind because girls so often forget things they did in high school and say, "I don't remember that."
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> Wait, we, we males, are, actually, we males are even worse. Uh, you know, actually, uh, <laughs> actually, it's, it's interesting. It's actually, research on this on autobiographical memories. One of my colleagues here, Robin Fyviech, has done this of this work here at uh, at Emory. Um, we, we men have just. Absolutely awful autobiographical memories for our childhood. Uh, oh. Just terrible. We're so we, uh, and, and we're really good at forgetting things that we <laughs> that uh, put us in a bad light. I think we're They're all at that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, let me ask you this as my last one. Um, uh, many, many years ago now, my wife and I had an experience, um, and this, this is one of mine. This is this is straight off memory here, uh, as fallible as that may be where essentially we were driving up a road and saw a bunch of lights off to the side in a, in an area of uh, high tension wires, um, Mm -hmm. like a quarter cut through the trees. And we saw these lights and didn't know what they were. They were obviously odd. They were obviously out of the ordinary. We pulled over. I got out of the truck to put my son's car seat in the back of the cap and, um, and got back into the car and, we had a significant amount of time that seemed to elapse uh, between me getting out and me getting back in the car that we couldn't rectify. I remember uh, directly at the time of seeing a bright light to my right-hand side, which would have been over a, a large acreage upon acres of woods, feeling like I got socked in the arm in the direction that this light showed up. And then I uh, walked into a field saw a craft uh, i mean you might as well say a craft uh, that was very dimly lit uh, when I rose up to kind of get closer to it it seemed to get brighter and then the next thing I know I'm getting back into the car is essentially the 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 summary of the whole story now the interesting part about that is at no point after getting into the truck to drive home did I have uh, i I felt somewhat shaky and weak it kind of like a uh, uh, if somebody gives you a serious fright, uh, I had that kind of noodle legged feeling. We got, I got back in the car. My wife said, oh my God, it's X, you know, o'clock. How did it get so late so fast? And then we basically drove home in silence, picked up my son from my mom's house, uh, drove back home and I didn't look at her the entire way home. We normally are very talkative. But we knew that something profoundly strange had yeah. happened that night. We just right. didn't. We didn't know what. Right. However, when I got into bed and I was waiting for her to come out of the bathroom, she turned the corner, coming out of the bathroom, and when I saw her face, it was all there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was. It was for both of us, and we both just immediately started crying like children, um, and both started. You know she says it was red, I said, yes, it was red, it was this, it was that blah, blah blah um and of course, there was parts where I was not present in the field where I was supposed to have been. I'm wondering what kind of what kind of effect the mind can have that you don't seem to recall an event that I can tell you I mean from what I remember of it was horrifyingly horrible
2: oh I'm sure I'm sure uh,
1: and and I literally, I can't think of another time in my life where I thought, I'm going to die. That's exactly what I thought to myself, is I'm going to die out here. Um, and then to get back into the car <laughs> and not remember anything until I get home and and look at her directly in the light. And then it all just, bam, hits us both. And we both are recounting exactly what, each, what we're, we're not feeding each other anything. We're seeing things at almost exactly the same time. What what part of the mind actually does that, that then it comes out when you then see that person again, or when, when you when you get a good look at them? I, I drove with her in the dark. I couldn't see her face. I didn't look at her. But then at home, that happened. What I'm trying to figure out why I wouldn't remember it right then and get back in the car and go, oh, my God, we've got to get out of here.
2: Yeah, you got me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't nothing, have a good her,
1: nothing in your... Uh, your, yeah. your arsenal, uh, yeah, I don't, you. yeah I don't
2: I don't think there's any simple answer to that in terms of um, why you wouldn't remember it but I mean after all if you're experiencing something very emotional your mind is somewhere else at that time mm-hmm. you know and um, it could be that you could not remember it um, and you weren't able to remember it at a particular time or it could be that you had someone asked you about it you could have remembered it at that moment but you're you were so emotionally engaged, so absorbed in something that you um, uh, you were simply not thinking about it, and then the memory kind of flooded back. I think mean, that's all happened to some of us. So uh, a lot of times people may think they cannot remember something, but in fact, they might be able to with some, some nudging, but they're, they're so emotionally engaged in something that they the memory just isn't there at that point. And then it just comes flooding back at a, at a later time.
1: Wow. That's very interesting. And Scott, I got to thank you very much for coming on and talking with it's us for been so been long about pleasure. this. And it's it's really been great because uh, uh, I, I said this last week on the show that uh, you know, I don't personally think this is all a psychological issue. I think there is some tangible item to it. What it is, I have no idea. But even still, if this does Tie into heavy psycholo- psychological aspects. I still find that equally as interesting. So
2: yeah, I think, man, and I think it, I think it's great, by the way, for people who might have different perspectives on things, even if we we disagree about the likelihood of things. I think it's really important to be able to talk about these things in a very cordial, collegial way, and and okay. sort of share different perspectives and entertain different hypotheses. And as scientists, we have to be be open to different explanations. I think we both agree something extraordinary is happening, how much of it is in, the, in outer space as opposed to inner space in our heads, right. that's still the question. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much, Scott. We would really appreciate it. Thank it you. It was man. my pleasure. Hi, this is Mitch Horowitz, the author of Occult America, and you are listening to Paratopia.
0: So the Jeff. I'm sorry, who are you? Jeff, has it been two months already? You're, you're looking good, man. You're looking fit.
1: I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Doctor Lillenfeld gave me a post-hypnotic suggestion before you left.
0: Is that right? What was that? I don't.
1: I don't remember anything we talked about. So, and I'm just going to put this out there, just for our listeners, you will not remember anything about this show.
0: <laughs> that's ironic because I thought he was anti-hypnosis. Oh, that's right. I guess it was all a ruse. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, great show. That was God, great a guest. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome.
0: The end. Well, you know what's funny is that while we were um, rap chatting there uh, off air, he received an email from David Jacobs. Now, I had um, I had emailed David Jacobs saying we were going to talk about this and we were going to bring up the Emma Woods thing on the show, and if you'd like to send a written rebuttal or comment or whatever, or if you'd like to come on the show after hearing it on Friday. Which would be right now, um, he's more than welcome to come on the show. And instead of replying to me, which he still has not done, he bothered to look up the email of Dr. Lillenfeld because I didn't give it to him. So he had to do wow. a little research and get that email and write to him and say, Dear Dr. Greenfeld, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is apparently what he wrote by accident. Uh, Great researcher. Please give me a call before you do the interview, <laughs> which it was too late by then. Yeah. Uh, but then, well, he
1: you said, you, you need to contact me about the case before you go on the show. Yeah. Right. So I can convince you otherwise. <laughs> right. No, that's I guess not If you said. can't get
0: his name right, then probably not. Um, right. But I, I don't know. I find that strange, but I, I guess it's good in a way because now we know uh, that uh, Sir Jacobs is listening. So uh, David Jacobs, if you want to come on the show, uh, we'll give you, we'll give you time, and um, yeah. we will be all ears. Um, because Absolutely. I'd really like to hear your side of this stuff. Uh, I mean, yeah. we got to be really clear that this is all alleged. We don't really know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Emma Woods, I haven't met her. Um, I've only corresponded via email. She seems very smart and very articulate, and I can't imagine what that recording. Of, of you with her could be except what she says it is. Right. Um, so if it's something else, I would love to hear it. Yeah. Um, On the other hand, no matter what he says, I, I still think um, there's no getting around the hypnosis bad element of right. all of this. And that right. whole reptilian through line that's been the story he's come up with in his research um, is just a load of uh, horseshit. I think is the technical term.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: <laughs> but if you want to come on and defend that too, great. I'm all, again, I'm all ears. What do I know? I'm just an experiencer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what would I yeah, know about the exactly. experience? <laughs> yeah. I know. We don't know shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I I mean, I, I I think it was great because a lot of uh, a lot of what we 've been saying was was pretty much validated and more i think I think uh, Scott had a lot more to say about uh, the pitfalls of which there are a hell of a lot more than I thought and a hell of a lot more than i 've talked about so uh, I think that was I think I was good i thought the the part about your regular memory being so fallible uh, was also very interesting as well so and it does uh Uh, We took a break to eat supper here, and uh, I have to say, you know, it's. I was talking to Lisa about our our thing up in the country there, and I said, you know, he he didn't have a good answer for why we wouldn't have remembered that right away. But yet, you know, the notion is that uh, you don't really block out memories, that there is no block out. So that says to me that whatever these beings are, that they are the ones doing it. They are the ones facilitating that block. We are not blocking out by, you know, fear or trauma or whatever. It's something they're doing. Uh,
0: well, okay. At least
1: after, after at least after talking to him, that's that's kind yeah, of like I mean, I think like a, that a, would a little bit, you know,
0: be something that you could derive from what he said. But I think he was really quick to say that it's controversial. His take on it, right? Yeah. Um, it might not be correct. Um, right. I mean, I'm not so sh- certain where I stand on that. It's interesting because I, I almost wanted to ask him, you know, when, when we relate to people and validate their feelings and you use that sort of clinical terminology where you validate everything someone does, does that sort of end up coddling them in a way where it helps them to, to act, you know, in, in unhealthy ways. Uh, whereas somebody like judge Judy, would she immediately snap you into lucidity and out of your uh, delusions and illnesses by just going, straighten up, mister, or something like that? Like, Would that snap you out of it as opposed to saying, see, what you're suffering from is this, that, and the other thing, and here's what we need to do to work on blah, blah, blah. So the point of that is I almost wonder if someone who says they've blocked out a childhood trauma um, would respond differently to somebody – who instead of talking them through that and validating that just said, cut the shit and remember, you know, I almost wonder if that would, would that snap them out of it? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And all of a sudden they would have would be- to
1: wonder. Yeah. I mean, I go back to, uh, when I was, uh, was talking to Jacques fillet in a pretense for another show, but he said, uh, you know, I, I mentioned hypnotherapy to him and I asked him, uh, you know, what he thought of it. And he said, well, I don't find it to be necessary. i find that if you, you know, he, he, you know, said again, I mean, he he said this publicly before that he hates forms, you know, and when a a UFO investigator goes in to investigate an abduction case, you know, there's a form to fill out, you know, some kind of typical questions that you would ask of anything. And he says, I hate those. I'd rather go in and just talk to that person. And, uh, I find that when I get them relaxed enough and I, or I take them to the area where the event happened, that they instinctively remember things that they didn't before. You know, I don't necessarily say Molly Coddle somebody and walk them through it and all that. I think that's because there's a goal. I don't, know, I don't necessarily know that you want there to be some goal that you're setting this pretense of a conversation that's then going to elicit some kind of answer mm-hmm. of what did I forget or what I don't, what don't I remember. But, but the amazing was, thing yeah.
0: to me is that in, in reading what Emma Woods has to say and in talking to even Deb Cobble uh, and others who have undergone hypnosis, who I assumed from reading these books, they go in for hypnosis, they retrieve these memories. It's like they have missing time. They retrieve the memories. That's the memories. You know, that's, that's the way the books are set up. But Deb Cobble and Emma Woods and others have said, no, 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 we have memories before we go in there. And they just help sort of flush them out a little bit. So if you already have these memories, why not just stick with the memories?
1: Yeah. I stick why with tamper that? Yeah. with that? Well that's exactly what I've you know, I, I had a gentleman write me some time ago who was a member of I think it was Above Top Secret where I was on there talking about the, the dangers of, of regression and all of that and and how we're not really getting an accurate picture, not only because data is being withheld that doesn't fit into the preconceived notion or the box. That the researcher wants it to fit in, but that that it, that it's just it, it's not reliable. And this guy, man, I'm telling you, he lit into me, and uh, you know, said that they had they had mostly conscious memories, but but learned more when they went in for regression and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, why would you even tamper with that? If you remember anything, just go with that. You know, my like I said, my own outlook is is you will remember when it's time to remember. Uh, when you can handle it uh, or something will trigger you off that you might read that might resonate with you. And and then that might spontaneously let you remember something. But as Scott said, I don't know that we can even trust that anymore because your memory is, is so fallible. It's, it's just not, you know, uh, I think it, his best advice was, okay, from here forward, <laughs> do this or feel this way or take charge or take notice of this. And, and that's really the best way to do it. If somebody says, I've had missing time, I think I've been abducted. Or, I woke up and my penis smells really bad, my dog's walking funny.
0: <laughs> Which is what somebody on the message board, in fact,
1: wrote a long time ago. <laughs> I think I've been abducted by aliens.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> dude, I think you banged your dog, dude. <laughs> I think you abducted uh, by werewolves. Oh, I'm telling you, that was just uh, <laughs> foul. That was just foul, and I'm sorry for bringing it up.
0: Uh, <laughs> Oddly enough, so, I'm not.
1: Scott, we bring things up like this up on the show all the time. So, if you're listening,
0: well, Scott would probably. I mean, as a psychologist, you've got to enjoy someone who says, uh, "My dog's walking funny. My penis smells like crap." Yeah, and, uh, and I think I've been abducted by aliens. <laughs>
1: <Right>? <laughs> what? Yeah, there it is. But I mean, I think even he said, you know, that, that conscious memory, even being somewhat fallible, is true. So I mean, it's it's. Um, it, it, I mean, it's very difficult to get at any of this stuff. You know, unless you're writing it down as it happens or directly after it happens, it's probably going to be hard to to hold on to an accurate memory for any length of time. So, I mean, for me at least my childhood stuff at some of the most poignant moments uh, of my life that I can remember. I mean, some of the most scary moments that I can ever remember. And that's why I remember them so vividly. But how about the, uh, writers and artists and creative people? And
0: <laughs> well, that's exactly what we've been saying too. Wow.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so great that he said that. I mean, it's just it's
0: true. It's true. Yeah. Most, uh, experiencers that we know are artistic. I mean, yeah. culture of contact is an experience or arts group, you know?
1: Right, right. We're conferences, Perfect.
0: but we always have an art show. You know, we're all pretty much artistic people. And uh, I, right. I would draw a different conclusion from that. I can see why he would extrapolate from that oh. fantasy oh, yeah. people, but I guess I would go a different way, you know, in terms of, well, gee, people who are open and susceptible to other frequencies or whatever that you know whatever the physics of that end up being uh, well see I think it's the ability to
1: I think it's the ability to visualize is what I think it is mm-hmm. I mean I I I'm still amazed that a certain number of people that I talk to and I do ask people weird questions sometimes but I'm curious I'm always curious about like like right now we're talking over Skype I'm looking at you you're looking at me but I can't possibly imagine what it's like to be you and have your perceptual experience and so when I ask somebody can you close your eyes and can you picture Fred Flintstone walking across your vision? And they're like, Oh no. You can't? Really? Really? I could do that. Why I can can't picture you picture it right
0: that? now as you're saying it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can see him <laughs> walking right across your face. You know, I mean it's like, yeah, I can picture that. But I'm I never ceased to amaze at the just everyday people that I meet in uh, and I guess non-creative based jobs. I guess people who aren't artists or, or, or can't visualize. I mean, a lot of people say, "Oh, I, just, I can't visualize that." Uh, I don't see that. I can I can remember what he looks like, but I can't I can't overlay you know I can't overlay a, a visual on top of that with my eyes open. That's impossible. I was like, "Well, I do that," <laughs> you know. So I think it I think it comes down to a, a certain amount of visualization ability. To be able to do that. So maybe that figures into exactly what you're saying is, you know, being open and perceiving the different things around us.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really just matters. uh, What is it that's being projected outward? Is it all from your brain or is it your brain plus some other things? Right. And um, I think that's where, again, Dennis McKenna comes in. I think that's where non-locality comes in, whether whether one believes in non-locality or not. Right. Um, right. I, I, I really appreciated his, his openness and his willingness to, uh, I mean, I didn't get the sense he wanted to hang up on us, which was good.
1: <laughs> no, no, he was very, he really enjoyed it, he said, so I was, I was glad of that. And he said, basically, what we're doing is good, that telling people that this is not a, a good option is a good thing. But I, I'm going to start taking his advice uh, on on what to say next, which is, let's let's forget about what's already happened. You have a suspicion, let's let's try and keep track from here forward and and deal with it that way rather than trying to go back and relive something i mean it actually makes a great deal of sense when you're talking about trying to get some documentation or at least documentation of your own experiences is okay you think something's happening okay it may be nothing let's go from here forward and 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 keep notes write down weird experiences as they happen to you or after they happen and let's see what we can what we can see in that, in that data and just go from there. I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately,
0: uh, I think there's far too many people who want to be special. And so, you know, they, they are just waiting to latch onto something and they, they have a couple of bumps in the night and piece it together yeah. uh, as if, could it be aliens? And then they're only asking so that they can answer
1: it. But i also don't know that it's always, you know, a desire to be special or different. I think it's, it's also that there, there's a, enormous amount of paranoia too in this and that you know if you really think something's coming in the night for you (laughs) and you're laying there with perked ears like a german shepherd any little cracker or or noise may be something so there's that aspect of it too and and also i mean i had a uh, uh, here's one for you i drove to work this morning and as i left my development a black sedan pulled up behind me with black windows tinted all the way around and it followed me all the way to work. <laughs> now, I don't think anything of that at all because as I turned into work, the man passed me and turned into another development. And so, I chalked that up to it's just coincidence. Somebody was leaving a house that was going my my direction and you know, they were always behind me 2 to 3 to 4 car lengths, you know, the whole way to work. You take somebody who is just coming into this, just realizing some sort of experience. I was followed to work this morning right. by a black sedan. And that you know, and that kind of thing happens all the time, especially when you're talking about the black helicopters. Uh you know
0: I'm sensitive to things. <laughs> I'm sensitive to things, Jeff.
1: <clears throat> I know. <laughs> uh and, uh, and so that's, you know, there, there you have that whole thing. So there's a certain amount of paranoia that goes with this too, that you can't, uh, you, you can't, just blow off. so everybody's, everybody's just got to take a deep breath and be critical of your own stuff. That's really the biggest thing you can do. You know, if you can find a way to explain it, there's no need to tell anybody about it, you know, and that, that's what I encourage anybody to do who thinks that they're having some kind of weird experiences. To, to kind of, at the time, just take a step back at it, observe it for what it is, and then try to think of, okay, how is this plausible? How can I explain this? And really, and don't want it to be true. Stop wanting everything to be true. Start looking at it as, this didn't happen. Now, I, I know what I saw, but there, what if there is a rational explanation for it? Do I want to be made a fool just to tell a story of some paranormal event? Or can I say... A car went by outside and reflected off Aunt Gertrude's picture in the hallway, which then reflected her image onto the wall. You know what I mean? I mean, everybody's just got to get a lot more critical about what their experiences are.
0: Right. Like, say, for instance.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know exactly just, where I'm going.
1: I just blew Pepsi out my nose. <laughs> say, for instance. You know, you're like Woody Woodpecker. I'm sensitive to things. You're an in, you're an instigator. is what you are. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's there's plenty of uh, <laughs> you're an asshole. Um, yeah, there's there's there's. I mean, literally, for every uh, for every instance like that, there's probably some sort of way that you could explain it. The question is. Could you duplicate something like that? I mean, and that's really, to me, is the true test is can you see a ghost in the hallway, decide that it's a car light outside, and then go outside with a flashlight or have your wife go out with a flashlight, and shine it through the windows and see the same thing and say, yeah, that's it. That's what I saw. I don't know. It comes down to is there a certain amount of disappointment if you can figure it out? You know, you've always got that double-edged sword of wanting it to be true because you want to have experienced something unique uh, that a lot of people don't, Uh, and then the part of you that says, there's got to be an explanation for this. I want to find out what it is. So I hope, I mean, if nothing else, I I mean, this show, I'm sure, for the experiencer community is going to be somewhat, shall we say, controversial, because what Dr. Lillenfeld said tonight on this show, basically... I mean, as far as I'm concerned, solidifies what we've been saying for a while, uh, and does it a lot more eloquently and a lot more in a lot more educated a manner. But what it says is that likely all the castles in the air that have built uh that have been built upon this subject via regression hypnotherapy is likely not correct.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, so we can expect a backlash of of uh and, and i fully do expect a backlash of that whole community to refute that but here's the problem you can't this is going to be a notion of people responding negatively to what's been said here to protect the long-standing work that they've had out there for so long and where does that leave us you know at, at the end of the day where does that leave, leaves nobody anywhere Except to look at other directions, which is the whole point of starting this show to begin with. So,
0: Well, here's another undercurrent of all this that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing is, um, you know, these guys, they use hypnotherapy um, to validate what they're doing, to go, look, a scientific tool that we <sighs> can that. use. Right, right. Um, and the people who actually know anything about it, the majority of them go, mm, not so much. Shouldn't be using right. that. So really, uh, you know, I almost wonder – at this point, I mean, of course, alien abductions and that sort of thing um, would probably have been a laughing stock all along, maybe. I don't know, but would it. I mean, if the thrust of this were not there are gray and reptilian aliens that are assimilating to take over the Earth, I'm going to blow up the Earth. If that wasn't what psychologists and psychiatrists were given as the story, but rather were given. Like what you said, look, these events happen to me. I don't know what they are. I don't know what they mean, but this is what's been going on all my life. I don't have a history of sexual
1: abuse. Yeah, with the extreme weirdness.
0: Right, with the extreme weirdness and, and right. all of that. I mean, would they be more open to that? I mean, was it a, a, a giant mistake, an ironic twist all along to have supposed that if they create this narrative for aliens that look similar to you know us – that 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 would be more legitimate and would have gotten them somewhere in in science and in the medical field? I mean, wasn't that always their hope was to be taken seriously by the mainstream? Yeah.
1: yeah. You think
0: they would have if they had just not gone that way and actually just presented what was really there and not created a bunch of outlier data and never presented, you know, all the paranormal stuff um, that goes along with it?
1: I mean, the, the problem exists at that point is, do you have any data that's going to pass the sniff test to the scientific community in the psychology division of that? I mean, like Scott said, you know, we're all too happy to look at these papers, provided that they're presented in such a way that we've got something to actually look at, not a bunch of feather and fluff. We've got to have something of substance to look at, and to examine and to critique, you know, from there, I mean... The well, what question I, what banks, I'm saying, is there anything that is
0: there anything to critique? Well, what I'm saying is you've got you've got t- just pure testimonies, right? If you've just got a book of pure testimonies, that's what you can present. What you can't present, and what they thought they could present that would be better than that is a casebook of hypnotically retrieved narratives.
1: Okay, so you're saying without the hypnosis, could they have presented it just straight out? Recall? Yeah, uh, yeah. What, do, probably, now, what do
0: you make of this? Not not. This is what we got through hypnosis, and these are the things that we tested for. These are the things that we kept secret, these little facts, and these are the things that are repeated all the time. Um, Therefore, this is real, to which they can just go, oh, you got that through hypnosis?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, (laughs) uh, I mean, the first thing you got to think about there is the limitations of the psychological field. I mean, they're not going to be able to say – this proves there's aliens.
0: No, no, but <laughs> this know, proves that, that this proves
1: that there's something going on. going on. Right, exactly. That's as far as they can take it. Is this is obviously some sort of phenomena that happens to people. We don't know what it is. Um,
0: because it's them who's saying this proves they are well, aliens. That's the problem.
1: Yeah, they're but saying, here's we
0: retrieve this hypnotically, and thi- this proves aliens. That's what they're saying. Right. I mean, that's ridiculous. That doesn't prove yeah. aliens. Even if you take it face value that hypnosis works and these stories were retrieved, you know, in a valid way still doesn't right. prove aliens.
1: Right. Right. I mean, but, but the other thing is, is that you would have to have data within your testimonies that wasn't necessarily, you would have to have some kind of controlled data in there. Like these four people or these 400 people that we, uh, that we interviewed about their experience all talked about a device that was shaped like a fish hook. Uh, with a, number, a figure eight on the end of it, just for instance, and we did not publicize this in any of our work, and this was never talked about. But yet, we've got 400 other people that describe this exact object. So there's got to be some kind of control mechanism in there that says these people have not had contact.
0: Well, but I Hopkins mean, you see how complicated that. that gets.
1: Well, where? <laughs> where is it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, I've been hearing that for a while now. Where is it? I mean, come on, what?
0: but even so, it's suspect, you know it's like as soon as as soon as you see, okay, these guys are painting their patients into a corner where they are tempted to give a certain narrative, do they necessarily then give certain details of that narrative? you know I mean, that to me is suspect
1: and the, the bottom line is if you're going to look at Bud Hopkins control samples, you've got to realize they're from Bud. <laughs> <laughs> there is control samples and therein lies the problem you know I, I, that's that's the problem and i think really if the study was going to be done at all then it should have been done by people like john mack as a whole not started by you know a history professor and an artist i mean i, I and believe me i and i'll say this again for the umpteenth time this is not extreme disrespect to them this is just i mean i again we respect them for going out on the limb we respect them for trying to bring this into a, a, a public discussion. They, they've, got, they've got the clout for that alone. Now we're talking about the data that you're getting, the way you're getting it, the way you're presenting it, the stuff that you're leaving out, all of that. That's the problem now is that it's been painted in such an inaccurate way for the public that the whole experience is now... Known to experiencers and to the rest of the world, it's seen in a completely different way, in some, you know, theatrical sci-fi way, whereas that's not how it is.
3: But they'll Uh, never say
1: that.
0: I mean, clearly David David Jacobs believes his own story. I mean, it's not just a matter. I don't know if it was at some point, but at least now it's not just a matter of, okay, this is the cookie-cutter narrative. I mean, he believes this.
1: Yeah. The threat. Right, so you are no
0: not going to need be said. You are not, not going to get him to 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 admit that to to say, yeah, Jeff, no. you are right. Sorry,
1: right, right. Just like you are not going to get Stan Friedman to admit that uh, you know MJ twelve papers are, are 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 faked. I mean, that's not going to happen. The end result is it's time to start over. It's time to start you know again, looking in those different directions because this way hasn't panned out. And no matter how much you want to hold on to it, because that's proving, it's not only proving your, or I don't want to say proving, it's not even proving, it's uh, uh, some sort of validation to your own theory, because we've got, you know, evidence A here, we've got evidence B for uh, Bud Hopkins, you know, hypnotically retrieved memories, which coincide with the history of ufology that we know about, Betty and Barney Hill all the way back that direction. You, you know, all that's, you can be honest, you might as well throw it out. I mean, because it's just, it, some of it might be good, like Scott said, but they're finding that most of this stuff is is not.
0: Okay, now all of that said, you and I have seen little gray guys or, you know, large-eyed, bald-headed, you know, the, the stereotypical thing.
1: Not gray. Yeah,
0: so, not a gray, but the thing that you've drawn. <laughs> might as well be the Whitley Streber thing with a, with a hat.
1: <laughs> with a walk lid on its head, yeah.
0: Right. So, I mean, <laughs> the point is we have seen these media images. Yeah. And we do still maintain that our, our stories are true to the best of our knowledge.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so what do you do with that in terms of saying, well, the hypnotically retrieved stuff is just cultural overlay? I mean, clearly something looks like that or presents itself like that or we perceive it as that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, legitimately.
1: Yeah.
0: So what do you do with that? I mean, are we just, what are we saying when we're saying that, that the hypnotically retrieved testimony isn't isn't real? Does that mean that there's nothing to well, we're that negative structure
1: not, that isn't rea- yeah. that is real? Well we're not saying it's not real, we're just saying that it's uh, it's suspect as the totality of the real experience. I mean, that, I I think Scott pretty much said that as well. It's but do you like, think
0: it's part of the experience? Do you think that there is because you don't do you? You don't think that there's a, a hybrid program no, or any of that no, sort of stuff.
1: No, no. Um, and yet, you and, any, yet
0: you're, and yet you have seen a being that pretty much looks like what Whitley Strieber says he's seen. Who does say they they took my sperm, they stuck a thing in my butt, and, and all that. They did, a, yeah uh, well, what does he say? That was a, uh, like a, what is it, a Prostate stimulation for yeah. ejaculation, whatever that, whatever the procedure is called. He says that, that to yeah. the best of his knowledge, that, that might've been what they were doing. Um, so how, how do you make sense of
1: that? I think that the experience itself is multi-leveled. And I think that, um, when you have a memory like that, you need to severely examine it. If it's in it, you know, like in Whitley's case, that it's this, uh, and again, he was hypnotically regressed, right? And that's what he remembered? By Bud Hopkins. Thank you. <laughs> Do I need to say any more? <laughs> but but here's the other thing, it, you know, and, and there are people who remember that directly, though. Um, and, and what I usually say to them is, is that, in, in, in all these years, and my first research partner and I were just talking about this because we recently reconnected via Facebook, and we talked on the phone the other night. That we still hold the opinion that the experience itself is multi leveled. In other words, your your recollection of it may not be the actual physicality, if there is such a thing in this experience, to what actually occurred. Is it a screen memory? Is that what we're talking about? I don't know. I and, and if so, who facilitates that?
0: Well, it can't be a screen uh, memory completely because you actually grabbed one of these beings, didn't you?
1: Yeah, by the face. Yeah, yeah
0: so that wasn't a screen memory. I mean, you grabbed yeah. one of them.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, no. I, but but that I like most people will talk about the typical alien abduction scenario of you know taking a sperm and ovum and uh, all that kind of stuff. I have never had that. And and I've always wondered, like, wow, my seed must not be good enough. <laughs> um, God knows they don't want to populate a new world with this.
0: Well, I, I, uh, yeah, populating the world with Germans, such a, I don't he's think. Such an,
1: he's such an angry man. I Why would we, we want him
0: somewhere? I think we fought against that in World War Two, anyway. So.
1: Oh, there it is. Thanks. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so – I look at that, but but a lot of people have remembered that sort of scenario. And I, all I say to them is that I think it's a multi-levelled experience. I think if if you examine that recall deep in a deeper way, uh, whether it be trying to do some kind of deep relaxation thing, going back to the site of wherever said incident happened, uh, any of these things you know can trigger it. People can trigger it. Events, times of day. Locations, then you may see that you remember something much different. I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> There's your communion for the night. <laughs> uh, I think I just think that, that that this is again, and this is getting into an area that I don't exactly know how to verbalize correctly. When I say a multi leveled experience, I, I, the only way to say it is that you may remember something but that is ne- isn't necessarily what exactly happened there may be more to it that you're not getting because you're focusing on the intensity of a almost a rape type scenario and that's that's the overpowering all encompassing theory of what you believe happened to you
0: and also people um concentrate on on ascribing motives which gets yeah. into good evil which gets into just basic uh, survival instinct i mean you look at what the, the the example that you gave from yourself tonight and, you know, geez, these beings just erase your memory. Uh, and then you had this cue that set you off later when you looked at your wife and, and yeah. how, how awful that is, right? On the one level, you think to yourself, wow, that's, that's really awful, evil aliens. Um, but on another level, if there is something just intrinsically frightening about the experience, um, how great is it that you didn't remember it when you had to drive home and bring your son, how awful would that have been to just be in the field in animal terror and, and, and know why. Yeah. Would you even be able to drive? Like, what would you do?
1: No. And that was, you know, one of my last, um, one of my last parts of, I think, you know, conscious recollection of that is standing in that field and seeing the thing come on. And that, you know, I will never ever be ac- able to accurately describe that feeling to anyone, other than just feeling like the bottoms of my feet grew roots into the ground. <laughs> you know, it wasn't—I wasn't paralyzed. I could have ran, but I, I couldn't move. I mean, that deer in the headlight thing—I can well imagine how that feels to a deer seeing a semi-tractor trailer round that corner as they're, you know sniffing at the double you know, yellow line in the road. It's the, it's, and it's very strange to me in that I don't think I've ever felt like fear when you usually feel a, 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 an incredible surge of adrenaline. I know I've, I've almost been in two very serious car accidents, and I always feel the adrenaline from my stomach. I always, that's where I always mm-hmm. feel like that's where it originates from, either that or in my chest. And this actually started in my feet, like at my feet level and rose up to my thighs. It was like this adrenaline, electrical, just numb shock. I'm going to die. I mean, that's, that's, literally, that's literally what I thought. Like, I'm, this, it's, I'm not going to I'm not gonna make it out of this. And I've never felt that kind of fear rise from the feet before, which is really kind of weird about that whole recollection of that. But what I remembered when I got home was that I was in the thing, and I don't know how I got in it. All I remember is becoming aware, laying on my back with someone telling me to open my eye and look, you know, and I could feel something brushing my eyelash. Like somebody was going to put something in my eye and I don't like, I don't even like the, uh, you know, the optometrist messing with my eyes. let least of all something I don't know. I remember the smell of, of that being very sterile and it was cold. It was cold as hell. Bright light, obviously, because I could see it through my eyelids. It was it was bright room, but uh, and I, you know, I probably haven't said it before, but and I, I, don't know that I could. I mean, after what I heard tonight from Scott, I don't know that I can exactly trust this. But I seem to remember a point, or at least when I picture myself in that scenario, I picture a wall down by my feet and a door to my right, and then a long wall to my to my further up my right. But I don't know that I ever opened my eyes. I must have peeked or something. But it was all very, 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 very bright. Very bright. And all white. And very little detail of room geometry. It, was, it, just, it just seemed very weird. And I felt weird. And so, I mean, that all, I remembered all of, all of that rushed at me when she came out of the bathroom and looked at me and she stood there in the hallway and we just erupted at the same time Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and you know i remember her saying it was it was red and i was like yeah with the little white lights you know spaced out unevenly between the red ones you know and then i were i remember it coming over closer to me and all sorts of lights going all over the trees and the ground and, and she was saying that before it was coming out of my mouth so i knew that something happened but there's no way in the kind of state that I was on the on the ground in that instance of that mind-numbing fear that you would have even thought about getting behind the wheel of a moving vehicle. You know, there's just no way. So I don't know if it was that I've got to get home. Don't look at me. Don't talk to me. Let's, let's just get home. Or whether it was...
0: Mm, I uh, think you had to have felt disgusted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. after I I have to say that getting into the truck, what I remember most is feeling, I don't know, noodle-legged, just drained, really tired, not out of breath or anything like that, but just like you've been given a really horrible fright. And then I I, I would have to – and I've never been on one, so I don't know, but I would have to assume it's what it's like when you just get off of a really good roller coaster. Mm Mm-hmm like that noodle leg feeling and you're kind of a little disoriented and you feel just a little bit weak all over and shaky, like very like leaf shaky. That's what I felt. That was what I felt the most of. And then when I got in, I went, <laughs> and Lisa says, it's whatever it was, 1130, 1230, whatever. And she's like, how did it get to be so late? So fast. I'm like, "Yeah, we got to get out of here. We got to get the kid boom. And we turned around and started driving home. And that was the last words we said until we got to my mom's and and she says, I'll go in and get him. And she went up to the door and got the boy and we went home.
0: Was your mom like, Hey, where were you? Or your
1: son? No, no.
0: Cody wasn't like, Hey, where were you guys?
1: No. Well, he was just a, a bitty thing. He was Mm -hmm. tiny. I don't remember mom saying anything about it. No, that was one of our, literally one of our first nights out after we had him, I think, or it, it it. Or maybe it had been a while since we had been out uh, on our own. Uh, I don't think it was the first time we went out, but we hadn't been out on our own for quite a while. And so we said, can you keep an eye on him tonight? And Mom's okay. So I don't know. Um, But I know that her face, that seeing her in the light of the bathroom and the room being fairly dim, and I know why that it triggered me off is because when I looked back at the truck, when this thing was over top of everything of, of me and her both, uh, that, that was one of the last visual things I saw was her face in the window of the truck lit up with the light from this thing. And so I think that's what triggered me off of, of that happening. And and for her, I don't, I don't know what triggered her to, to just start crying at the same time. So, but damn, God damn it. I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep with a shit that night. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what to say about a, a shared experience like that where you both remember the same thing and there is that clinical aspect to it, but I get the sense that they weren't going to put anything in my eye. I get the sense that it was more about open your eyes and look at us. That's so, so I mean, again, it, for me, it always goes back to, they want validated by you as being real. They need to have that acknowledgement of that. I've always said that, that, that they demand to be acknowledged, you know, um, for you to acknowledge them as real. And and I think that that's, I think that's part of what it is. Um, and I think that night, at least part of my, part of my realizing that this is real and this is really happening is the aspect of the one saying, do you want to hold my hand? And me saying, yes, <laughs> you know, because I, I guess at that point, You'll take anything, you know, and so taking a hold of the hand is the end of the memory. After that, I'm around back of the truck, going around the corner to get in. That's the last thing I remember is taking hold of the hand um and maybe I guess maybe that was enough. I don't know.
0: What did the hand look like? Did you look?
1: I didn't look. It oh, felt look like a it felt like um like i like I would have heard it. Uh, because in you know, the, the hands, I remember how it felt because when it took a hold of my hand, its fingers wrapped all the way around to the back of my, you know, so it went from palm to palm
3: mm-hmm.
1: and its fingers, rather than stopping at the back of my hand, went all the way to the beginning of my palm again on the other side of my hand.
0: Hmm.
1: So I remember that part. I remember feeling a little bit of nail. On the edge of my skin, but I remember squeezing, and when I squeezed the hand, when I squeezed, when I squeezed the hand, <laughs> squoze, <you're> right. <laughs> When I when I squeezed the hand, uh, it it just felt like a bunch of like rubberized carrots. You know, it was it was very knuckly and had a certain give, a certain sponginess give to it. But it all kind of, rather than just being flat fingered, it all bunched together like you were holding a bunch of hot dogs. So I got the feeling I, I, I could easily break the hand right off of this thing, you know. And there was a slight smell of like a, like a wet cardboard type smell with a little bit of like a fish, acidic fish smell. Let me smell you. Let me smell you. Yes. Are you old? <laughs> I'll kill you. <laughs> You've broken my mind. Yeah. So, anyway. Good show. Yeah. It was, that was a good show. I enjoyed it. I really did. So, let's have the fallout. <laughs> yep. Come to the message the boards. Part, the good part is, I won't be here. <laughs> yes. Uh,
0: come to the message boards and uh, yell and scream and rant and rave. If you're David Jacobs, give us a call. Give us a write. Come on the show, ignore us, whatever you want to do. Um, What
1: about you? Don't you have something that, uh, some experience that you, uh, or you probably have more than a few of them that you just don't, you remember part of it and then you don't remember until a certain point later?
2: Ever happened to you? Yeah,
0: well, yeah, that was, um, I think we we probably talked about it, which was that that time that I had that experience um, where I said, why am I seeing this? And the female voice said, because you've always wanted to know what an abduction was like. Right. Um, that I didn't, that the next day I didn't want that to be real. And so I just convinced myself it was a dream. Just don't worry about it. It was a dream. Uh-huh. Just shut up. Uh, and then I guess it was a year later. Or so when we had a subletter um, filling in for a roommate, I was talking to him in the kitchen and all of a sudden uh, this is in the morning, my, uh, my left nostril started to bleed and that, uh-huh was the trigger mechanism to a memory of that night where basically where my wall should have been was this sort of force field of light and my nose was bleeding, but it was bleeding down the back of my throat, not out my nostril because this meditation energy had sort of done weird things with my nasal cavity to cauterize it earlier in the night. I'm assuming, uh, right based on what it was doing, which was basically pinching the bridge of my nose, which was so mundane because normally it's doing this Tai Chi looking stuff and yoga to just sit there and pinch the bridge of my nose was completely weird. Except then later that night, like I said, I had a nosebleed that didn't bleed out. It went down the back of my throat um, as this force field was there. And then that force field was the same quality of light that was outside my window um, during the abduction and was also, the same quality of light that I saw in the room when when you know I was asking why am I seeing this right, so it was like I flashed back to that night, and that quality of light made me realize, okay, you have to deal with that, that was real. you can no longer believe that that was a dream you know what I was mean? that a fr- was
1: that a completely fragmented memory though I'm not sure what you mean well which, was it was it uh, of of the whole you wanted to see what an abduction was like uh you know, from outside perspective, the you well, remember?
0: memory was seeing, seeing light outside my window, girls next to me, um, a girlfriend at the time on a mattress on the floor. We're real right. high maintenance here in New York. Right. And, right. Uh, and she's asleep and this bright light wakes me up. And so I'm looking out the window and I'm like climbing over her to like see out the window and trying not to wake her. Uh, and I can't see what the source of this is. It's just this bright, diffuse white light. And I'm, I'm looking at this going, this is, you know, this is impossible, but she's not waking up. So I'm like, okay, whatever. So I lay back down and I sort of look over and right there are three gray beings or gray to the blue hue of uh-huh. the scale, not right. like chalky white, but like bluish gray um, with cloaks or hoods on standing there. And they're just sort of with that weird ambivalent smile, that little smirk, you know, that, that with just sort of the emotion of like, come with us, you know, like friendly, naive, they don't say anything to me, but even so, I'm like deadly scared. I'm like just completely paralyzed with fright. Um, And then the next thing I know, and here's where Scott would say, okay, it was a dream because there's no transition except there often isn't. Uh, The next thing I know, I'm standing in my boxer shorts, which I'd gone to bed in. So it's consistent with what I was wearing. Um, and looking at this row of tables, uh, with humans on them. And the one closest to me is this blonde woman, you know, maybe in her late forties, early fifties and they're all naked and they're all unconscious and the lighting in the room, you can't see what the lighting source is, but there is some sort of top down lighting, ceiling lighting or something. Um, and the rest of the room is not a script. There's nothing. It's all black. Uh, and there, the, the three beings, presumably the same beings are standing around this woman, like presenting her, like show and tell, like, see, this is what we do for a living. And that's when I'm, I'm looking at this, and now I'm not scared. Now I'm not nervous at all. So there must have been some sedation process between my bed and that place where I can yeah. think to myself, you know, why am I seeing this? Right. Because you've always wanted to know what an abduction was like. And then we right. had this conversation, this female entity and I, uh, that I forgot because I let it go. I didn't bother to write it down because I really wanted it to be a dream. I was like, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. That's bullshit. Right. Uh, and uh, then, like I said, a year later, when I saw that same light where my wall should be, which pretty much answered for me how they come and go, it answers for me how it is that I'm seeing a bright light outside my window and all of New York isn't waking up. It's because there is no bright light right. outside your window. There's some sort of portal or something that that opens up <laughs> in Direc- space.
1: Directional, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. So and, was, and, like I so said, much- then I didn't remember that until the next morning when I had this bloody nose, which triggered the memory. <laughs>
1: Right. So that wasn't a completely contiguous memory. I mean it was it was parts that didn't that you don't know about, that you that you can't uh, flesh yeah. out as far as chronology goes. I mean you can't walk somebody. Well, I through don't even it.
0: know I don't know what happened in my room with the bright light. I mean the memory of the bright light is like I said, I remembered well, I remember it anyway, going to bed, the meditation right. energy wanting to do its thing, and so I just let it and it ended up pinching the bridge of my nose. And then right. uh, early in the morning, um, I was woken up again by bright light and I, this time I'm in a different, I was in a different bedroom and switched bedrooms. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm in a bed, not just on the floor in a mattress. So I'm, you know, if I'm lying this way out this window, I'm looking out the window to my left front for the light because my room is bright and that's waking me up and I'm looking mm-hmm. and the sun is still down. So it's confusing because it's still dark. It's still nighttime. Uh, and I, look over to my wall right next to me, uh, which the bed is up against and where the wall should be. Is this just white force field or something? A white light is the wall. Huh? And then my nose starts bleeding and I don't know what happened before or after that. Uh, curious. And I only remember that because I had a nosebleed in the morning. Huh? Weird.
1: That is weird. I wonder what about it makes your nose bleed.
0: I don't know. I have no idea. Radiation poisoning?
1: No, <laughs> well, let's hope not. Uh, I don't know. That that is bizarre. Well, what do you say? More next week? <laughs> not with me. There won't be. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. I shall. Uh, and I'll be I'll be hitting the message boards intermittently. But uh, I'll see you guys in a few weeks.
0: All right. Enjoy your time off, sir.
1: Thank you, sir. I do. Dun dun dun.
0: (laughs) And scene. And
1: we're out.